0: Hi everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp Podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today we're gonna cover healthcare. We're gonna cover healthcare, artificial intelligence, how we can reduce health risks, how we can reduce accidents, how we can reduce malpractice, all the elements that are part of what we can see in a utopian future, potentially are happening today. And joining me, I have two founders, uh, Pascal and Minaj, who are gonna talk a little bit about the companies that they are uh, leading, but also they're gonna be sharing their future of how this industry is quickly evolving into something that looks more like science fact rather than science fiction. Uh, So thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, Pascal, maybe we start off with you, uh, kicking off a little bit about what uh, what you guys do um, and some of the early success you've had with, with the app that you guys launched and um, a little bit about the future.
1: Sure, thank you very much for having us. So my name is Pascal. I'm one of the founders of Giant, written G-Y-A-N-T. And what we do is basically, we've built um, technology that leads you from your symptoms to the most likely condition. Like a doctor would do that just by asking questions And listening to your answers, but just without the doctor through artificial intelligence. So I've put together a team of a couple of pretty cool guys that I've known for a while um, that have a similar background like I have in the consumer world of things. So my co-founder and I, we've been running a gaming company in Berlin for a couple of years, and we founded an e-commerce company, an e-commerce company. So we do come from the consumer side. And in the healthcare world, the consumer side is not as developed as we hoped that it would be and so one of the biggest problems that we've seen is that when people get sick when they wake up in the morning and they feel bad they go to google and they google their symptoms and as if you if you've ever tried that you know that the experience is are scary yet um, and you know it's not leading you anywhere so we thought how would this be if it was you know working in the way like all technology works right now with a tap of a button and in a, a good experience and so we came up we built this as a Facebook Messenger bot, so it's basically like you're chatting with a friend who went to med school. And this friend is going to ask you questions and develop a hypothesis about what else besides your first symptom that you've probably said in the beginning, you have, and so develops a hypothesis about what you likely have. And so the first thing that we've done, because, you know, this is the big problem, medical diagnosis is a very, very broad field. So we wanted to start with a domain that is a little bit smaller. And so we started with a checker for the Zika virus. And we now have checked over 350,000 people in Brazil for Zika. And um, that's actually, if you look at it, 2.5% of the female population in the demography that we've looked at, 15 to 29 years old. So 2.5%. That's a great number for a startup. We used influencer marketing to do that. So we had reached out to a lot of people that have large audiences on YouTube and they drove the traffic to us. And we did that. We wanted to have these high numbers of users because we're using machine learning to improve the accuracy of our diagnosis. And that worked really well. If you look at our Sensitivity, that's how you, when you look at diagnosis, you always talk about specificity, which is the true negative, and the sensitivity, like the detection rate. And our sensitivity of our Zika diagnosis by bringing in these 350,000 people increased by 400%. And we hadn't started at a very poor level. We had started at a level where we had got help from um, a lot of experts in the field where we've read practically every research that was out there. Still, data plus machine learning got our sensitivity, our detection rate for Zika up by 400%. And now, interestingly, we have the world's second largest Zika data set at our hands. And uh, we have people from Stanford and the and other institutions working um, with us and for us to find out what else to do with the data that we've generated. So. That is kind of what we've, what we've done so far. Our next step is to launch a more broad symptom checker. Hopefully that's happening uh, somewhere in the next two to three weeks.
0: Excellent. Thanks for that. Manoj, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of what you guys are doing.
2: Thanks, Carlos. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, My name is Manoj Ramachandran. I'm a practicing orthopedic surgeon and I work in London, England. Our company is called uh, Viz, V-I-Z dot A-I. And my two co-founders are Chris Mancy and David Golan. Um, We started off essentially bursting out of Stanford. Chris and I had a previous company together on medical education. We were exploring new ideas and we settled on uh, artificial intelligence for medical imaging. Uh, We met David, who is our CTO, and Chris is our current CEO. And we started building algorithms for various types of medical imaging, from ultrasounds to CT scans to echocardiograms of the heart. And our sort of breakthrough was we came up with a a minimum viable product for ultrasound imaging of the hip for a condition known as hip dislocation. And eventually that caught the attention of uh, Eric Schmidt, um, the chairman of Google. And he ended up with his VC firm, Innovation Endeavors, funding us. And seed camp were really crucial in that, um, funding round, uh, when we raised our seed and that allowed us to build our, our biz dev team, our tech team and also a regulatory team. So over since sort of August last year, we've been working on various algorithms and the one we've settled on recently as the one we think will bring the most value in a hospital workflow is one for strokes. So, uh, strokes are very common. I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast is either had a relative or a friend who uh, has suffered stroke at some point, it's a devastating condition. Uh, once the blood flow to your brain is blocked, you tend to lose millions of brain cells per minute. The quicker you can get to the right hospital and have the right treatment, the faster that's diagnosed, the better. So we've come up with an algorithm that essentially picks up big strokes, the ones that are amenable to treatment where you remove the, st- uh, the clot and allow blood flow to um, flow back into the brain and that's usually done by an expert like an interventional radiologist that's an x-ray doctor who can insert various little catheters and stents up various veins around your body and then clear clots uh, but to get to that right person in the right hospital in the right time is extremely difficult so we're working with a bunch of centers in the US and then I'm exploring the UK and Europe to validate our algorithm and then to run prospective trials at the same time going through regulation which I'm sure we'll be talking about later because that's obviously one of the biggest uh, hurdles in developing any medical technology, but it's vital to navigate that carefully. Um, and at the moment, we're looking to expand across uh, the entire globe, essentially, we have a team that's distributed uh, across the world, uh, our tech teams in Europe, uh, sorry, our tech teams in Israel, uh, management and sales team are in Silicon Valley, and there's a team based here in the UK and Europe, uh, along with a, a minor presence in, in India and Asia. Um, so that's where we are. What we're trying to do and our ultimate aim is to get the diagnosis made for a patient with an acute problem in the right time so that they can get the right treatment um, as quickly as possible. And that saves a long term burden on the healthcare system, particularly uh, when we're facing an acute shortage of all types of skilled specialists from primary care doctors all the way through to specialist surgeons and radiologists.
0: Thanks. Maharaj. Let's uh, go to the first question that I think everybody has as a patient with a patient hat on, which is this all sounds good and, and fine. And I could see where it would really streamline my medical um, diagnosis and processing of, uh, of, uh, of an illness or a condition. But the moment that you get it wrong is the moment that I want to talk to a human being or want to be dealt with in a way that is more traditional walk us through if we assume that the future will include this maybe 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 it doesn't maybe you guys have a view on whether the future will circumvent this because of of sort of people needing to deal with people rather than machines dealing with people but how is how are risks mitigated in the future of healthcare
2: so maybe i can start off um i, th- I think there's a really really important uh, topic i think the important thing to realize is that to replace the human experience uh, where a medical professional who touches you, listens to you, has empathy, provides uh, not just a clinical diagnosis but care that 's holistic is irreplaceable actually and i 'd say that I'd go goes far as to say that uh, an algorithm or a robot or whatever form this uh, this artificial intelligence will look like uh, will never replace that that human experience, having said that, we are a a really crucial nexus in in healthcare in that there really aren't enough specialists experts people to deal with all the problems that the entire globe is facing and it's not just in western countries but even more so acutely in, in developing countries um and so we have to find a way of of working with this technology i think the hardest part isn't Accepting that this technology will exist. I think patients particularly uh, the new Millennials who are so Au-fair and comfortable with technology uh, Are happy to interact with it. I think the harder piece is integrating it into clinical workflow So that it augments the practice of, of a healthcare physician or any healthcare professional. I think uh, there are lots of mundane tasks. I mean, I work in a hospital pretty much most days. Um, I'd say that 80 to 90% of tasks that I perform and all my colleagues perform are routine and mundane and can be automated. And what we would really like is to have these mundane tasks, particularly for very common diagnoses or common symptoms or common problems to be taken away from us so that we can concentrate on the patient more. So we can concentrate on the patient experience more. We can concentrate on treating treatment more. Um, I think the future of healthcare, the way it's going, is that uh, specialists will become even more specialized. Uh, generalists become more specialized too. And all the common problems that we deal with, uh, from uh, writing medical notes to looking at routine x-rays to perf- uh, prescribing routine medication, that will all be automated. It's already started. I think that change is inevitable. It's a question of how we manage it and how we introduce it to the patient so that it's acceptable to them and i agree that there has to be a front of house and a back of house so that a patient who doesn't feel comfortable with their experience still has human contact when they need to
0: Mm. well any thoughts on that pascal yeah uh i think Manoj, you you
1: just uh, you just said it you know absolutely right right there is a big capacity problem we need to find these solutions but so giant is coming from a is, is probably on a little bit of a less critical topic. So the most of the things that we're taking care of right now are those things, you know, when you go to a GP's office, you see that fifty people fifty percent of the people in the waiting room have the same twenty conditions. And those aren't very, very bad things. Those are the flu or urinary tract infections. And we believe that if we can treat these high-frequency cases through artificial intelligence. We're taking so much load off the system that, as Manoj said, people will be able to focus on the more critical things, and that's where the humans probably come in. Having said that, and I've always compared the AI and healthcare part to the AI and cars driving, autonomous driving problem, right? So... It's it's hard to build a car that drives as good as, you know, Hamilton or Vettel or one of these great drivers. But it's very easy to build a car that drives better than my grandmother. And as humans make mistakes, the average driving quality, you know, is not as high as we probably would think. So and I think this is where uh where this comes to the to the medical problem as well. If you look at the world, it doesn't even mean if you're providing medical help, you're not even always competing with doctors. A lot of cases, you're competing with health workers. Or, you know, if you go to Africa, probably you're you're, um, competing with the, the oldest man in the village who just happens to have the broadest medical knowledge, but it's not anything that is somehow based on science. So just providing people with artificial intelligence, in some cases, you can't be as good as a Stanford doctor, but you can be better than the average pretty quickly. And also looking back at the self-driving car thing, I think there will be a big mindset shift. So if today, um, for us, it seems very normal to just jump in a car with a random stranger and let him drive us from A to B, while I'm pretty sure that if I tell that to my daughter who was just born a couple of years back and in 20 years and I'll t- tell her about that, she would say, what, you jumped into a car with a random stranger? I would never do that. I would trust much more the AI of Tesla or the AI of uh, of Uber or the AI of Google. I would trust these guys, but I wouldn't trust, a, you know, this guy that I've never met jump in the car with him. I mean, all these things that could have happened there, right? So I think there will be a significant mindset shift from "oh, humans are safe" to "oh, humans have all these human problems."
0: So, and I'm so but if, if I put if I push on that for a second, I, do I, I don't know if that analogy is is fully fully uh, parallel to some of the challenges of the of the human body partially because they're so inconsistent. If you take your average road, it's got yellow markings, white markings, and you can expect a certain regularity because it is a regulated uh, series of, of uh, transportation networks. If you look at, for example, um, a, a talk that I, I heard from a, a doctor on a Ted, TEDx uh, chat, he was talking about being a war doctor. And what he, what he said was that the current generation of doctors, and this is pre-AI, the current generation of doctors are not doctors, they're technicians. And they understand how to operate the machines, they know how to, which buttons to push, but because they don't have a holistic view on a lot of conditions and how they interact with each other, what they're doing is that they're going down this sort of this or that path without having a, a comprehensive view of what the implications are of other things that are not necessarily uh, um, tied to what the person comes in for. You know, the example he gave was he can tell from the smell of the urine what specific issues that patient might have, which are compounding the issue that the person came in for. And I'm just curious as to whether or not the the, the analogy of like a car driving in the a, in a, in a road could potentially mean that we're making all sorts of mistakes on the basis that there is... Not enough regularity from body to body to be able to take this. So, Naj, do you yeah, want to answer this?
2: Yeah, can I take that? So, just going back to what Pascal said, I, I, there are a lot of things that I agree with him. Number one, um, I, I think my three children, who are very young, they're less than ten, they won't be driving cars. Um, they will, they will, they will grow up in a world where they probably never need to learn how to drive. Number, but in healthcare. It's a much longer process. I remember when we moved from x-rays that were printed out to digital radiographs. The lead time for acceptance in a, in a healthcare workflow is much longer than, say, most of the tech-related industries. So, yes, it takes longer because of regulation, because of acceptance, uh, because of uh, failure to change, primarily amongst the medical profession, but eventually we'll get there. The second thing I'll say is that... The our algorithms and their accuracy, their reliability, their sensitivity, their specificity are completely related to how we train them. And that's the same with training uh, driverless car algorithms. And ultimately, the mistakes that humans make will be translated into what the algorithms can and can't do. So to say that the body is so complex that uh, from individual to individual we're going to find it very difficult to train an algorithm, I think that's our limitation rather than the technology's limitation. Um, the oldest man in the village analogy is very interesting because the oldest men in healthcare villages like big hospitals are the experts who've been there for 30, 40 years, are about to retire. And what you want to do is capture their brain power and their thought processes and their logical algorithms that they've created in their healthcare experience and put that into an algorithm. Now, if I had captured every single one of those 40-year-old experts and put it into the algorithm, the algorithm would be much better than any junior doctor or even dozens or hundreds of thousands of junior doctors so I think it 's how we train the algorithm and how we teach it variability and uh, and this is what we do in research you know you wouldn't, we would never throw a drug into a patient unless we 've tested uh, on animals well usually in a lab model, then on animals, then on a few humans is it first in man and then hundreds and thousands of humans before you say, well, this is a drug for widespread use. That's the same with algorithmic technology. You would have to validate it over and over again. You'd have to test it in every clinical setting. An algorithm that works on medical imaging in in Harvard will be completely different to one that works in a village in Uganda. And that I think that's an interesting... I think it's our limitation that we don't see the themes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and so if mm-hmm. we can train algorithms to see the themes, and there will be algorithms that will smell urine and tell you that whether they're diabetic or not. There will be, or ketotic, yeah. there will be algorithms that put information together and we'll be able to pick up tiny patterns that we won't be able to see. And that's already being shown in, yeah. in research and with nodules in lung cancer and imaging, with skin images for dermatologists. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a few papers recently from Stanford to showing exactly that, that ultimately you, you train the system, uh, the better you train it, the less mistakes that we'll make. So yeah. I think actually it's the counter argument, which is we shouldn't be relying on humans as much. We should be using, harnessing all the power and, and experience of hum- humanity to train these algorithms to help and support yeah. us. But the problems are how does that black box work? How does it think eventually? And we'll come to this, I'm sure. Yeah. Is, is the trust in that process once you've trained the algorithm.
1: Yeah. Pascal, you want to add yeah. something? Yes. I mean, what we're seeing right now in the world of self-driving cars, again, is a little bit along the lines of what Manoj said, um, you know, you see these cars that are driving around and they have a driver on the driver's seat and he's not touching the wheel, right? And um, what we also see in the clinical setting is doctors walking around with iPads, the iPads not making the decision, the, the decision. but learning about what the doctor actually does. Right, and so these two things—they are right now—they're kind of in a symbiotic stage, and, um, and and that sometimes can can get very scary. I mean, I live here in the Bay Area, and. Uh, there is this company called Auto and they don't have self-driving cars; they have self-driving trucks. And it's really scary to see that guy there, you know, basically reading the newspaper while he's navigating a truck. But the, the truck is driving by itself. But you see the, the the potential devastation that could come from having a self-driving drug, right? A truck. So, but I think that what's what's going to happen, and that's also how Giant is approaching this. We're not going up to to insurances or or uh, providers and tell them hey, you know what, we can make the decision for you. What we say is we can ask the right questions and present to your practitioner a transcript of all the questions. And so he will be very well informed and he can do what he would normally he would have to ask 15 questions to get to this depth of detail. But he will not do that because he will not not have the time. But we can do that because our AI has the time and takes the time to do all that. And so we're making this process smoother and we will have a hypothesis about what the diagnosis is, but we will pass it on to the doctor to make this final step. At some point when we've learned, when we've seen enough how the physician actually takes this, his decision, you know, the technology will be as good as a doctor. And what you also have to keep in mind, by the way, if you're comparing self-driving cars and, and, and doctors, doctors are right in like 85% of the times that's just how medicine is it's an inexact science so, and that's something so that Pascal, we have to
2: get I, I completely agree with you and I, but i would say that the the difference is um the barriers that are in healthcare that allow us to adopt uh, these technologies yes. because we we can create algorithms in fact creating the algorithm is the is the easy part i think in healthcare the harder part is putting it into the workplace and getting people to start using it trusting it Trusting that it's supporting your decision making rather than working against you, and knowing where to put it in the first place. I mean, we, we we work with legacy systems in healthcare that are so archaic that if you introduce any piece of new software, then it it, it falls apart. It just doesn't. It can't cope with this kind of um, new software. So if, if we come along to a hospital and say, "Look, we've got this amazing piece of artificial intelligence that we want you to use and incorporate," our systems can't cope with it. So I think there are these are the challenges we'll face, I mean, along with regulation. Um, is how do we get it into the workplace, and how do we get people to use it that helps them in day to day practice without it completely crashing their current legacy systems? And that's these are the sort of challenges I think we're going to face. I think the algorithm issue is not going to be a problem. That's a solvable maths problem.
0: All right. So you're introducing a couple of. Hurdles, right? You just introduced sort of how to integrate with current infrastructure. Yep. Um, and then, you know, we're going to get into the sort of trust in the black box thing. But let me continue back to this whole point about technicians versus doctors versus algorithms. Bedside manner. Let's look at how it is that doctors get to the right answers. They get to the right answers sometimes by understanding the emotions of the patient and the emotional state. Oh, this guy is in shock. I cannot expect this kind of answer coming truthfully or this is a, you know, sexually transmitted disease issue and this person's embarrassed and they're not going to type it into like a display, right? They want to whisper into your ear. They're embarrassed, you know? Uh, and think about people's religious inclinations and, and the shame associated with answering certain questions on an app, you know? So, or, or is this something that is is not, you know, scalable because of that across, sort of public facing tools, or is it more of a uh, uh, technician only kind of product?
2: Yeah, I might, I might take that first. Uh, I think it's. It's what I said earlier about front of house versus back of house. Ultimately, the the empathy, the bedside manner, the, the kind of issues that a human brain brings to to the table in healthcare, it's going to be very hard for AI to, to replicate or even come close to for a very, very long time. I think there are so many subtle issues, and that's human nature, right? So this is not a pure technical or logical problem. It, it's psychological. It's psychosocial. There's a whole bunch of other issues here. I, I don't think we should minimize the challenges. I mean, these are hard challenges to overcome. But what we're trying to do is focus doctors and healthcare professionals on that human being in front of them. And the more you take away mundane tasks, the more you make the simpler things routine so that you don't have to worry about that. I mean, if you talk to any doctor who works at any hospital or healthcare setting, they spend more of their time worrying about their routine mundane tasks, whether... You know, a blood test has been sent off and whether the result is back. If you could take all that away, then actually you can spend more time with the patient. You can take into consideration their social, ethical, religious issues that cloud their treatment and will allow them to say adhere to that treatment. So I think actually it's, a, it's an enabler of holistic care rather than something that will, 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 will fight against it.
0: Yeah. Maybe Pascal, you can comment on how Giant deals with it. Cause I know you guys are actively in the, in, in the, in the space of, of helping not just what Minaj said, but also in in sort of consumer facing and how you can trust that black box to discern not only diagnostic information, but also how to get the right information out of somebody.
1: Yes, we have actually seen um, something that was surprising to us. So we were asking pretty personal questions in our checker for the Zika virus because we needed to figure out, could this woman be pregnant, right? Is there a chance for a pregnancy? and we thought that we would see kind of a drop off so that people would not answer but we didn't see anything people were actually very you know very openly sharing a lot of things and so at some point we developed this hypothesis and we think it's true there's no shame in talking to a machine and that's actually a good thing especially if you look at the target group that we're targeting like young people 16 to 29 you know, there is a lot of problem they're encountering for the first time and probably they wouldn't want to talk to their doctor about that. Imagine you live in a small, small town in Brazil. You're not supposed to have sex and suddenly you're pregnant, right? Do you really want to talk to that one doctor that you know has a strong relationship with your family as well? So there is no shame in machines. I think that's a good thing, actually, and that can open up a couple of new things on the side of even mental uh, conditions that 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 can be very exciting and very new for, for for the world. So that's one thing. The other thing is that you've been mentioning empathy. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, when we ask you a question in our product, and you say, and we ask, for example, do you have a fever? And you say, yes. And I say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, right? And we do this. So we react to different answers in a different way. It's like kind of artificial empathy that we're providing. And we believe that it works really nicely. And the what we've seen is, so we had these 350,000 people use our system. And we've got like 20,000 audio or vis- video messages where people just picked up the phone at the end of the conversation and just... Um, recorded a message to us and said, hey, thank you very much, Giant. That was a great experience. Why would they do that? If they knew that it's a bot, right? Why would you say thank you? I do believe that we have, like, that in every human, there is this need to see somebody on the other side. And it's actually not so hard to, to kind of push them over the edge of thinking, even if we tell them that it's a bot, kind of forgetting about it and just wanting it to have a soul. And that's why, you know, they say thank you. So I think that creating empathy through you know, artificially is actually not that of a hard problem. It's actually possible and and done right, it will create a lot of trust and it'll bring out things that a doctor probably wouldn't have been able to bring out just because there's still so much shame in opening up and revealing problems to a
0: human. So let's let's deal with the, the sort of big elephant in the room when it comes to healthcare and AI, which is regulation what is the current situation with um, having to get certification regulation um, any of the sort of the typical governmental or um, supervisory bodies that you know uh, apply to both drugs but to other uh tools and, and services that are given and to to the medical world as well as how data is treated minaj
2: yeah so um so this is one of the g- greatest challenges in in, in healthcare AI, um, and the, it, it's it's highly regulated. Um, I think it will change with time because it, it's getting harder for organisations and bodies like the FDA, uh, the MHRA in the UK, and and then the EC body um, to look at things like biomedical software, which is what we're talking about here, um, and work out how to allow them to operate, but. Mitigate the risks. So initially, when we started, um, we realised that any any claims that you make about how you either help a diagnosis or offer a kind of treatment based on the diagnosis you've offered could potentially change the course of treatment for that patient. And as a result, you have to go through a regulatory process. Now, depending on the the strength of the claims you make, that process is more rigorous. So our, at, at, Viz, our strategy was to work with, uh, people. In fact, one of our, uh, our consultants is the person who's written the textbook on biomedical software regulation is in, is ex-FDA. Uh, and we've worked very closely with our regulatory group that we have within Viz to really plan how we, um, validate the software, uh, what level of studies we have to do to show accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, and then what kind of prospective studies you have to do to show that it works in the clinical workplace. And these are hard challenges. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. The FDA, particularly in the US, is, is known, to, is notoriously known to be difficult, um, which it should be because it's trying to protect patients. And particularly when you've got software that we've talked about the black box before, when you're putting, you're putting something in and you're getting an answer out. And as this gets more complicated, we don't really know what the inner workings are. Uh, it's a convolution neural net that just produces a result. And to go back and say, well, it decided to X because of Y, um, that gets increasingly difficult. So then it's all about real-world clinical trials and real-world validation. In the same way that if I was going to put a hip replacement into a uh, someone with arthritis to the hip, ultimately, you don't know how it's going to behave till you put it into the hip. So you have to test in the real world. And it starts with small trials, and it goes out to large, multi-center, randomized trials. And that's that's how it has to be. I think regulation is the elephant in the room. But my advice to anyone in this space, uh, particularly people who are thinking of Going to sort of healthcare AI startup is it's probably one of the first things you need to be thinking about, and whatever funding you raise it doesn't account for the amount of money you need to spend and, and time you need to spend getting your regulatory documents and your regulatory pathway set up. I think from a patient's side, uh, if I was a patient and someone was going to use a piece of software to make a decision on my treatment, um, whatever the treatment was i'd have to be completely confident that it's doing what an absolute expert would have done. And that's what we need to have um, validation against, which is the ground truth, the absolute expert. Uh, it's, it's only right. It, it, that's the hardest challenge in healthcare.
0: No, I could totally see that. Pascal, I think I'd be really curious to hear how you guys manage that, considering that, again, you're very consumer-facing. But secondly, what are the opportunities within what you're doing for countries where regulation is actually a little bit more fluid and or... More importantly, in situations of critical times, like uh, emergencies, uh, um, any kind of World Health Organization type uh, uh, events, um, or any kind of um, virus spreading really quickly, what what are the things that you have available to you?
1: Yes, that's a big question. On the
0: regulatory side,
1: just to to say that for Giant, what we do, we we hold ourselves to the highest standards, but we're basically a symptom checker. And to the most part, we're regulated a little bit like a search engine. As I said before, we're not really, you know, at least not yet competing with doctors. We're probably more competing with uh, Google, just getting people to to a likely condition. But what we've seen with, uh, with our Zika checker is to build tools that have a very high reach and that are able to stratify patients into different kind of risk clusters and um give people personalized information. Like in the case of Zika, uh, we found out that a lot of people actually thought, because WHO called it such a big crisis, uh, that a lot of people thought Zika would be Ebola-like, you know, killing people by the thousands. And that's actually not true. Zika is a very mild disease. The only problem that it has is that it may cause, cause very, very bad consequences if you're pregnant, but only in that case. So giving... Personalized information to large numbers of people, having a good, fast way of stratifying patients. I think that's a that's a that's that's a very big topic that will, um, especially in the topic of epidemiology, um, be be significantly driven through companies like us that come from the consumer side. And um, if you look at how this is regulated, it's not you know really regulated at all. Because what we're doing is kind of an educational approach to, to medicine. Um, and, and that's also why I believe that a lot of what we'll see in the change in the, in the healthcare space will be driven through consumer companies that just kind of go to the, to the limitations of what you can do, but just provide better education of patient, empower patient to make the right decisions, empower patient to own their data, um, empower patients to, to, you know, kind of take these steps that they can take without a doctor, right? And um, help themselves. And if you do that, a lot of that is actually outside of the healthcare regulations. If you're not a provider, you're not a payer, um, then in most of the countries here, it's pretty easy. And in our case, actually, if we now look at it, I said, like these 20 conditions that cause 50% of the people, or that make 50% of the people sick that are in the waiting room of any given um, GP, most of the drugs, that you can get for this in most of the countries of the world don't need any prescription, right? If you're in India, most of the things that you that you want to get, you just go to the pharmacy, you have a chat with the pharmacist and he'll give you whatever he th- thinks is, is the right thing to get. And if you go there and you're informed already, that's a great thing. A little bit more complicated in the US, in the UK or in Germany, but a lot of, or what I want to say is that a lot of the change that we will see in the healthcare space is going to be driven by companies um, that come from the consumer side of things that are less regulated and that just empower the patient to do more on their own.
2: But uh, Sorry, Pascal, I was just going to interject and say that I, I completely agree with you. But I think, again, the analogy to a driverless car is a, is a very good one, because the first time a, a car careers out of control and kills a few pedestrians or makes a decision – for example, it's about to plow into uh, a five-year-old child and it makes a decision to avoid that child and, and say kill a 70-year-old elderly gentleman. And so it's making a, a decision based on some rules it's learned in its, in its neural net. That's when we'll start running into trouble. And that's when we'll have to really show whether you know, we can get away with not being regulated or not, whether that's consumer-facing or whether it's a mild or entry-level um, regulatory uh, device or software that we're using in a healthcare setting. I think those challenges we haven't really hit those challenges yet, but that's where we're. Let me push that because
0: okay. you know, you're 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 a doctor, and, yep. and therefore you've got a lot of commitments to your patients' uh, ethical commitments. Is there something that's off limits for AI? Is, is there, one thing is to say that, I mean, there's a, a sort of typical ethics problem. Mm-hmm. Do you do this or do you do that? And then you, you weight the, 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 emotional impact to the, the person you're doing the experiment on. Is this a family member? Is not a family member? Is it a child? Is it a mother? Right. And you, you sort of gauge the ethics of this, right? Um, is there a point where the, the role of a, a doctor, whether it be a triage protocol, is something that uh, is not, is not something that AI can do.
2: That's, that's a good question. I think I think, it, particularly in the early days of healthcare AI, when you've got an absolutely time-critical situation where you have to make a decision about whether a patient's going to live or not based on, say, a, a blood test or uh, an imaging result, um, it'll be very difficult for AI to be right at the forefront of it. Um unless it's working completely in concert with, with the healthcare profession making that decision. Uh, I think the, the changes and the real innovations in healthcare AI will come for the more chronic conditions. So learning in non-time sensitive conditions where you can make a decision where you have no time uh, limits in terms of when you have to make the decision by. Uh, but ultimately, I think that absolute critical situation where someone's dying in front of you and you're going to trust an uh, an AI algorithm to make the right decision, I think that's not off-limits, but it's a long way away. Um, I, I think also being a completely autonomous uh, algo, which doesn't have any humans around, that's probably a while away too. Um, I think at the consumer end, you can get away with it a little bit more, um, with chatbots, etc. But ultimately, if you make the wrong decision... And there's no human at all involved in that process. I think that's gonna that's gonna cause trouble and it's gonna put us back a little bit. But ultimately, this will happen at some point.
0: So here's an example of where that could happen earlier rather than later. And okay. this is one for you, Pascal. So, you know, the example you just answered, Menage, was, is sort of a, a sort of more of a it requires a level of AI that we don't yet have to hit that wall of ethics. But here's another version of an ethical dilemma. Pascal launches an STD checker, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone is using it. It becomes the next big thing. He's got all the data. And to some extent, to provide a better service. And maybe this is not Pascal, this is Google. Google's got all this data. The moment that you know that these two people are friends on Facebook or that Mm -hmm. they have a relationship because of the paper trail and the data trail that they have, that one of them has an STD. Mm -hmm. At what point is it the obligation of the app provider to let the other person know, especially if that person came out negative, that this is a potential risk for them? And so that's, that's something that can be done today with just having that data available and knowing the relationship of these two parties doesn't really even require AI. But uh, how, how do you even reconcile those two things, Pascal?
1: Yeah. In this situation, I, I always try to turn back to what it is right now and to what um, doctors would do in this situation, right? And um, just, you know, doctors have been around for a couple thousand years now and so some of the rules. Probably that, longer. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, a couple of the rules that they have, I hope, um, have formed to the, through the time and have proven to be good. And so a doctor won't say anybody, won't tell anybody, right? Um, there are a couple of things that he, that he, like, um, zika for example in brazil would have um would be needed to report right but that's um reporting it up to an authority um to limit the spreading of an of you know something that could potentially affect um the whole country i don't think that like on the example that you're giving right now it would would be uh something that a doctor would do you know he wouldn't if you went to to a doctor and he would would say okay you know there's a there's a danger of an std he wouldn't call the wife although he knows the wife as well but if there is a threat to a bigger population then it may make sense to do it but that's exactly the situation what it is right now
2: i I, I agree with you I, i think patient confidentiality is is tantamount there's there's no question so the minute you're aware that someone has a sexually transmitted disease and they could potentially spread it and you know their potential net that they could spread it into, um, your duty is still to that patient. You tell the patient that it's their duty to inform, um, their contacts, et cetera. Um, I, I'd also, I'd probably look at it the other way. I think, I think an AI algorithm would behave in a very similar way to a doctor, but no one could get into that doctor's mind and steal that information and then spread that information around. But this information that then, if, if someone, if, if a consumer app company, a consumer facing company can, can make that connection, then anyone who gets access to that data or hacks into it has access to that information. So I think it's more about the systems that it's controlled in rather than what that individual algorithm could do. That's, I think that's more the danger is how quick, how easily someone, if they really wanted to, could access that data.
0: Mm. Yeah. Interesting points. So maybe to wrap things up, um, you guys can share a little bit about sort of the the the, the future that you see, you know, maybe not so short term, but it's kind of medium term, just sort of to to give us visibility, maybe as founders and investors uh, that are listening to this podcast, kind of like where you see this evolving. Uh, Pascal?
1: Yeah, I think from, from, from my perspective, and that's, I'm sure, a little bit different to Manor's perspective, what I believe is that Um, artificial intelligence will be able to empower patients to know more about their health situations and to make better decisions. Um, I think that is where we, where we want to go. Like the situation, you know, if today you had, if you had that one guy who happens to be, to be married to a doctor, he will always naturally know more about his own health than somebody who is not and who can only see the doctor or does only see the doctor three times a year, if you just follow the, the common statistics. So this is, I think, where um, on the consumer side, artificial intelligence will make a big impact, empowering patients to know and understand more about what their choices actually are.
2: Yeah, so for my side, I'm just going to add a point to what uh, Pascal just said. My, my wife is a doctor, and in fact, she's her interest is sexual health. And maybe we should chat at some point, Pascal, about, because she's, yeah. she's been interested in developing something um, oh, to do with sexual. We'll chat separately. <laughs> but you're right. I think the average person out there doesn't have access to expert medical advice. So at the consumer end, the more you can empower patients with information, um, and, and believe me, when you do that, you'll get a, a Gaussian distribution, a bell-shaped curve. So there'll be people at the, the at the end who will, who are, who want to be loaded with information and make wrong decisions based on it. And people on the other end who don't care, whatever you give them, they'll still carry on behaving the same way, and that's true of human nature. Um, from Visa's side, we're we're different to to Giant in that we're focused on healthcare in a in a hospital or um, primary care setting. Uh what we'd like to see, and I see this acutely in my practice every day, is the number of medical images tests that are done that we have no expert humans. Uh, present to be able to read them accurately and to provide a timely diagnosis and we're so stretched at the moment globally that uh, particularly for medical imaging and for blood tests etc a lot of this is outsourced to teleradiology companies to companies that essentially are, are taking resource away from healthcare and from the individual payer uh, and the individual patient. so the more we can put in systems that allow people to get to the diagnosis quicker and the more we can triage people effectively to the right treatment, the better it is for everyone, for the for the provider, for the payers and particularly for the patients. So for us, um, we're trying to push um, the boundaries so that we can get this kind of technology into a healthcare setting, into the clinical workflow and help with this acute shortage, which is only going to worsen with time of healthcare professionals who can provide expert diagnostics and treatment. That's, that's our aim and I think uh, we're not unique in that but I think from us uh, our point of view we've got a, we've got a very strong clinical background uh, my other co-founder I forgot to say Chris Mancy is a neurosurgeon so he's really attuned to stroke as it were um, that's what we're aiming to do with, with this
0: excellent thanks for joining us guys hopefully uh, you guys got a lot out of this and uh, we will be putting uh, the contact information for, for Pascal and Minaj on the episode notes so check those out and until next time Bye.
1: Uh, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.